We're going to begin our sermon series in the book of Samuel, and we won't go every chapter, but we will take crucial parts throughout these chapters here in 1 Samuel. And we just finished Matthew, and we go back into time from our previous series in the book of Matthew, about uh, 1,100 years plus before Jesus came to the earth. It was a bleak time in the Middle Eastern history of the Israelites in their relationship with God and his with them. If I could kind of put it in kind of a, a trite statement uh, on the condition of things, people just weren't praying anymore, looking to the sky anymore. People weren't in church like they used to be. As a matter of fact, their version of church itself wasn't what it used to be. It was just a routine. Just for most, it was a cultic obligation to go up to the temple to make your sacrifice. There wasn't really a living relationship. This was a time when Israel was led by quasi-spiritual civil leaders called judges. And judges were like the generals or the presidents, and sometimes they were simply the warlords and the law at the time. And as in our world, a man or a woman with that much power was destined to be great, and as in most cases in recorded history of Israel, destined to be great disasters of leadership. It was time for change. People were feeling it. God had already planned it. And here in Samuel, we see the, see the dawn of a new thing with its own set of problems. No longer would they settle to be the communal, kind of nomadic flower children of the Middle East. They would be a kingdom called Israel, a people led by a king eventually. In other words, they would trade in the reliable Honda for the Hummer. Not necessarily a bad thing. As a people, they needed more room. They needed more pull, more power as a, as a country. But they, as we will learn as we go through this book, bigger does not always mean better. More expensive does not equate to being more dependable. That high mileage and faithfulness are just as important as more torque and more power. With that theme in mind, the beginning of the next great and necessary and God-purposed thing begins with a woman. A woman who so far can't be a mother, but who will be granted by God to give birth to an era and actually be used in her anguish to awaken a people to their God. This woman, of course, is Hannah that we've read about, her story. George and I sometimes get in these talks, and it really sounds like uh, elementary Sunday school when we ask these questions. And the question we had, and you've probably asked this question, did Jesus, God in the flesh, who was a carpenter before going into full-time ministry, did he ever cut or use a crooked board in his carpentry? Did he ever put out a resultant chair that wobbled or waved kind of funny in it back? Did he make and, and then give a table that wasn't level? Did Jesus, the perfect person, do that? The Bible tells us and kind of conveys to us from beginning to end, from the human perspective, in our experience with him as recorded in Scripture, in his dealings with his people, yes. He makes crooked boards, and he makes them perfectly crooked. 
perfectly crooked for a sure foundation, perfectly crooked for our well-being, for His glory, for our assurance in the right thing, assurance in the right person. What's unfortunate, though, in our experience is we try to throw the crooked board out, or worse, we look to fire the God who made our life so hard. He calls us to see the crooked boards in our lives for what they are. Only by seeing him as the one who makes the crooked board. Seeing him as the one who actually gives us this crooked board, these hard situations. And then seeing him as the one who actually uses the board for something glorious. Hannah's story is our story. A story in a life in which we are called to acknowledge that, guess what? The Lord, it is the Lord who makes the crooked board. He makes it crooked purposely. If we look back at verse 2 in the reading, it says, Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penana, and Penana had children while Hannah did not. I'm reading from the New Life translation. Your translation may be a little different, but it's saying the same thing. Then if we look back at, down at verse 5 after the explanation that she didn't have any children, it says here, but he gave Hannah a special portion because he loved her much. That's her husband who gave her a double portion to me. Even though the Lord had given her no children. But it says, I think in your version, it says um, her rival uh, made fun of Hannah because what? The Lord had closed her womb. Then it says year after year, it was the same. It was not by chance. Wasn't bad luck. God Himself, actually, the Lord there, closed Hannah's womb. He stopped her from having children. He made this crooked board in her and her husband's life purposely. In designing the issues of our lives, I thought about, how, why does God do this? How does he do this? Maybe, maybe God decides not to change, you know, let's, see God, let's see, see God as a carpenter, right? Let's say he decides not to change the blade or balance on the saw so that the cuts are the result of a faulty blade and not his actual cut. Maybe he cuts a tree that is, that is already incredibly twisted and, and allows the curves and the nature of the tree to determine the resultant wood. In other words, maybe the Lord allows the uh, results and effects of human sin to take effect in his perfect making of things. It's like he's allowing fungus to have its natural way on fresh milk to allow for cottage cheese. But the Lord makes stuff in our lives crooked purposely. Either allowing it to pan out or stopping things that we feel should happen for us from happening. Now, the Lord isn't some big cosmic killjoy, you know, just playing games with humanity. We see from this text that he makes it crooked for his purpose. Hannah just wanted a child. Like any woman, God wanted something different. He obviously wanted something more. She just wanted to carry on, a fa- on the family name or, or made to feel like, like most women at that time did. It, it, was a, it was purposeful for a woman to, to have children, especially back then when womanhood was about bearing children. But if we look ahead in the story, which I think is sometimes dangerous when we're really going through something, you know, you read these Bible stories and, oh yeah, we see how it all works out, but it's important that we look ahead. If we look at verse 9, 
Once when they were in Shiloh, Hannah went over to the tabernacle after supper to pray to the Lord. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord Almighty, if you look down upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will be cut. God gave a crooked board. He gave a closed womb. He gave a discouraging and and disappointing situation and dilemma to bring about his purpose through Hannah of Samuel. To, To have a child given and dedicated to him for his work, for the good of his people. Samuel would be a priest unto the Lord. And he would usher in great and incredible and wonderful things. What we should learn about the crooked board situations in our lives is this. Things are not crooked solely and ultimately based upon your goodness. If we look at Hannah's rival, her, the, the other wife of, of the husband, she's teasing Hannah at, at church, if you will, for not having children, for not being fertile, ha, 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 you know, in church. I mean, this is the woman who shouldn't have children, right? It's not about your goodness. It's not even about how good your life should go. Maybe Hannah was a praying woman. Maybe she was ahead of something. Or or, or maybe she was more loving to her husband. We see that he gave her a double portion. But though she was highly favored, guess what? She was still barren. God has a purpose greater than what goes according to our goodness. Or how good your life should go, or how good it has gone so far, or how ordered or right you've made things. He has made a crooked board in our lives for his purposes to be dealt out in your life. I had a hard time thinking about God doing this. You know, with the house stuff, I mean, we've been in this house situation since February. And at every turn, there's something more, something extra. And I'm like, Lord, why? I'm praying. I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm a pretty good person, right? Why is this happening? This just don't make no sense. We've prayed. We've trusted. We've fasted. We've checked our sins. What is stopping it? Why, Lord? For his purposes. I can't even fully see it right now. But for his purposes, the Lord not only makes the crooked board, he gives us the crooked board to be wrestled with. Oftentimes and most times, as I've explained, without any reason or appropriate end in sight. Now let me explain something to you. They try everything to make Hannah feel better. She's given more food than the other wife, which would be a sign of extra love since she had no children uh, to feed. I mean, it was just her. And, And her husband even struggles with the crooked situation, trying to be enough himself. He says in the scripture, am I not as good to you as ten sons? He's feeling like a failed hero to his wife's condition. It is a wrestling back and forth. And when we look at Hannah's tears, she was granted by God a wrestling within herself, wondering probably. Now, the text doesn't tell us all, but probably wondering, questioning of her purpose, of her womanhood. Or like I said, thinking about the sins she or her family have committed. God put the situation in her face. Having the other wife taught her. 
what we see is that God does not always take the issue away or prevent the trying situations in our lives to go away. Sometimes He gives it and leaves it and causes the human heart and resolve to wrestle without answer within or without. Now this is important to understand with the temptations we have to soothe the twisted, crooked situation that ultimately won't help. For some of us, we feel somehow we're different than everybody else in the world, that we aren't called to wrestle. So we we blame it away or sleep it away or relationship it away or try to solve it away or our issue of dilemma or problem. But But God, as we see in Scripture, calls us to wrestle and not to substitute it or numb it with pleasures or extra work. I mean, look at Hannah, to actually have it tire us to process and bring us to a place where we can't but help but give it up and give it over, to be beat by it for relief and release by God alone, to come to a place where nothing will suffice or help or heal or numb or substitute or fake, nothing that is but the relief and release that Christ alone gives. And we are ultimately relieved when we give and entrust the heavy load to him. Look again at verse 9. We have Hannah praying for a son. We've read up to verse 11 already. And then if we look at verse 12. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound. He thought she had been drinking. You must, must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I'm not drunk, but I am very sad. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Please don't think I am a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, cheer up. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she claimed. Then she went back and began to eat, and she was no longer sad. It's not about understanding it and having it all in front of you. We have the full story here, but Hannah didn't have that. We do because, of course, the finished text. So don't be fooled here. Relief is first about having your heart broken, tired out, bringing you to a place where the words of your mouth and heart, like Hannah, admit and call for surrender and relief unto the purpose and plan of God. It is when she was broken and empty of hope in herself, that she gives her dilemma to the Lord when her heart begins to pray, when it's more than a cognitive and religious routine. And then she gets the soothing words and work of the priest. The prayer of giving her child up to the Lord is a prayer of surrender, of relieving her, of releasing her faith to and for the purposes of God. And it came through great anguish and sorrow and tiring. Some of us look to false relief. What we do is we transfer things that are out of control. We put them and file them away. I like this thought of of putting them in the Tupperware of I've got it. And then we kind of shelve it on the shelf. It'll be okay. No, it won't be okay. It isn't okay. Your life has issues and situations that are crooked and messed up. Your life has situations that and it can't always be figured out and put together. Let me explain something to you because we're pretty smart people here. 
understanding and talking about your issues and dilemmas and acting like you're humbled by it and even counseling others with your analytical analytical mind is not freedom. It's not relief. I've been reading this book, Van Gogh Blues. It's a psychological book about depression in the creative mind. Some of us were talking about it before church this morning. And, you know, it talks about artists having depression because they're in a world where nothing present really has meaning. And so they're, they're, they're in their depression of not having meaning, they go and seek to create meaning out of meaninglessness. And so as soon as the artist sells his artwork, back to depression. Meaning gone. Now, as I look at this, and, and I'm kind of creative, you know, I'm writing every week, trying to pull a sermon, pulling illustrations together. And, you know, I, I grew up doing music and all that stuff. I'm kind of, or, or kind of have an arts mind. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm a pastor. First of all, I'm a believer in Christ. I studied the Bible, I've been to seminary, and I have a heart struggle with meaning. I feel that things in life are meaningless, and that brings me, and I'm looking at the, I'm reading myself in these pages of this book, and I'm telling you, this time reading through it, because I've read through it before, it wasn't like, ah, finally, I understand myself. It was like, ah, something else. I mean, I'm not going to repeat it, but it was like, I'm a pastor who has an issue with meaning. I preach every week to you meaning and I... Some of you have issues right in the middle of what you're called to be and do. Understanding it is not the end of it. You can't go, ah, you got to go, ah, something else. Like, this is really messed up. I need some relief here. I've tried everything. Some of you are are, are people, you're painters, and you have no canvas. You're a student, and you don't have great reading comprehension, and you can't write very well. Some of you are great, have great vision about what a house should look like and what you're going, but you don't have any money. Some of you are, 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 are desiring to be loved and, and enter into relationships and be social, but you're not very outgoing or attractive to people. Why? I do it all the time. I go and say, yes, I know what the problem with it is, and the answer is, and God is, and give me a break. Yeah, really break me and you. So the Lord can release and relieve your heart with the answer and grace of the priest who is Christ. Some of you are such experts on stuff. Marriage and child raising and time and how to make it better, this and that. And you have all the right degrees and you get along with people. And guess what? You're running scared, trying to still wrestle and cope. I mean, I like that you guys are smart. I'm I'm glad to have the Barnabas Center. I believe in it. I go to it. Me and Kelly go to it. I mean, I, I think that's great. I think it's awesome. Awesome. Read all the books, understand the human psyche, understand all the stuff. But some of you, your hearts don't cry. In your understanding, you don't break really. Understanding is a coping mechanism to keep it from you. 
I'm like that. Sometimes I come to church, I just have a hard time worshiping. I mean, you read the confession and all, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you kind of, we have yet to be worn down and broken and tired and thus truly relieved by Christ. Most of us here, we hate weakness. We hate the weakness of emotion. You know, someone starts crying in church and we look over, oh man, what's their problem? We're so much like Eli that we look at someone crying in church, we think, man, they just need an emotion. They're just showing off. They're taking my time up. They're, they're, they're going too far. Or the pastor that moves around too much or acts too crazy. What's his problem? He's just trying to manipulate us with his emotion, right? We hate that because emotion means weakness. And for some of us, we will not know the relief of Christ until our emotions reveal our weakness. Your stillness, your togetherness is not relief. It's paralyzing fear. Fear that if it hits your heart, you won't know what to do with it, which means you don't really know the priest Christ who gives relief. Let it hit you. Jeremy and I, uh, Jeremy Sorizano and I, he, he, he was a great friend, helped me put plastic underneath the crawl space. And you go into the crawl space, you have these crickets, right? These big camel crickets. They look like a mix between Alien on, um, what's that movie with Will Smith? Yeah, Men in Black, and it looks like a spider, and it's real big, and they're just weird, and they're very harmless. But I got under there, and at one point, I thought, oh, they're all gone, right? And so I get a little further in, like midway in, and I look back in the shadows, and there's like hundreds on the back side that I've got to go past. And I'm just like this, you know. I don't scream. I'm just paralyzed in fear. And some of us have these issues, and we've come to understand it so well, and we're so morose and calm, and I just need to read another book about it. And the reason you're like that is you're paralyzed in fear because you don't know what it's going to be if them crickets get on you. You don't know what it's going to be if you truly have no control or any coping mechanism outside of Christ. God leads you back to the crooked board to break you so that you can truly hear and believe Christ's work for you and words for you. That thing, you know what thing I'm talking about. You can't get over that problem. It will lead you by God's grace to relief before and by Jesus. Now, we alluded to this earlier, but the Lord is not about abusing human beings with problems for nothing. He doesn't give a crooked board just to whip you or make you sore, but he uses the crooked board to build a sure foundation. He uses the crooked board to, be, to bring redemption. Now, Hannah's anguish and turmoil, Hannah's crooked board is used by God to bring redemption to a nation and to a people. It's hard without having read through the history leading up to this to understand, as I pointed out in the intro, that the relationship between God and his people has reached a point of straining, a point in which people just didn't pray with sincerity anymore. I mean, look at what happens when Eli hears Hannah's prayer in verse 12. He says that she was praying to the Lord. Eli, who was the priest, a professional man, a pastor, if you will, watched her and, and seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk? 
he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I'm not drunk, but I am very sad. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. The priest assumes first that she must be drunk. Not that she must really be praying. I mean, what else could it have been in a time when people came to the temple out of routine and not with a heart broken, a heart of prayer? It was a time when it was more likely that people came to the temple drunk. But Hannah's prayer is a breakthrough in prayer. It's orchestrated by God through her anguish, through the crooked board. It was not Hannah who was breaking through, but God using her broken life to redeem the communication between God and his people. Now prayer, real, sincere, authentic prayer was back. And that's only part of it. The prayer and answered prayer is tied to the sacrificial system. We, we get this picture of the system that is done in routine. Uh, maybe you sacrifice so that God wouldn't be mad at you. But it wasn't done because there was some effectual, cultic, spiritual relationship between God and his people. There, there's this small nuance, if you will, in, in verse... Um, 19. Well, let me explain it to you. They're going to go up to the temple. Her husband and and the other wife and probably the family is going to go up to worship and bring their sacrifice. And and Hannah says, no, wait till the the child that was given after my answered prayer is weaned, and then I will bring my sacrifice and him to the Lord. And, And it's interesting what she does here. What Hannah does is she doesn't just go out of routine, but she waits to go when the vow of the Lord is fulfilled to join her prayer in practice, to join her joy and answer concern with the good, sacrificial, merciful love of the Lord. She calls all involved to make connection between her offering and God's gift. And in doing so, God, through her vow, brought on by the crooked situation, declares, guess what? The sacrifice means something. I answer by grace, by mercy, giving above and beyond what is deserved, thus forgiving sin and loving people. And in addition to that, the priesthood itself is redeemed by God's use of the crooked board. Now let me explain something to you, and and we're taking a little longer here, just because once we get this, we'll understand the book of Samuel better. Samuel is a book of words. And the words give us themes. The words tell us a spiritual condition. And so when we look here at verse 8, look how the priest of the Lord appears. Now, people are bringing in things to be sacrificed. I mean, it's, it, it's a real event. Verse 9, rather. Once they were at Shiloh, Hannah went over to the tabernacle after supper to pray to the Lord. Eli the priest was sitting at its customary place beside the entrance. Again, the writer of Samuel, they don't put words just to put them. The fact that Eli is sitting, the, the one who earthly connects God with his people, to speak for God and lead people into worship, he is sitting in his customary place. He's like a shop owner with familiar customers. Like, he's just going to work. I got to sacrifice the Lord. Come to worship the Lord. Come on in. Bring it on in. No big deal. We're one of, oh yeah, the God of Israel, the creator of the earth. We come to worship him. You know, we get this picture of flies maybe flying around Eli. He's just chilling. The Bible tells us later, later he's probably in a fat 
Man, he just, not because he's just overweight, he just eats too much. He doesn't do anything. It's lazy. It's like he's a guard at the museum of God, of something that once meant something. The priesthood is sitting because of Eli's presentation. Guess what? It looks like God is sitting, that he is not moving. But Hannah calls the priesthood alive with her anguish. With God-produced prayers, God's work in her life through her turmoil, it awakens the priesthood from its slumber. God is declaring, I hear and I answer and I see my people. I am not sitting, though my priest is. And what happens here? Something unusual happens. Something unusual for this time. If we look at verse 28. Now I'm giving him to the Lord, she says, and he, Samuel, belonged to the Lord his whole life. In the last sentence, and they, yours is he, and they worship the Lord there. They worship the Lord. The redemption of prayer and sacrifice in the priesthood, the very relationship of God with a people rightly, God reaching his people and awakening his people comes by using a crooked board, anguish, disappointment, waiting, tiring, turning a heart broken into surrendering dedication to him brings worship back. Here's a lesson that's hard and relieving. Redemption and reform come through a crooked board. So that in narratives like this, in the lives like Hannah's, in the life of the church, and individuals like you and me, so that the sure foundation is the Lord himself. Not the strength or good idea or a good preacher or a good vision or a good church organization, but that the foundation will be about the move of God. That we can actually say, you see how many crooked boards we have in here? God must have done this. That God does this through and among those of us who are sitting, who are stagnant, who are spiritually discouraged. That if we in the world around us are disheartened, disillusioned, and disgusted with God, guess what? In the relationship we have with him, that our and other strength and adversity to God will not stop redemption for us and for this world. It is a sure foundation because God uses a crooked board and is not dependent on or trusting on the strength of people for or against him. But at this point, I hope you're still not quite satisfied. Not quite satisfied that God will break you to use you, that God will give you and use this crooked board, this plan of redemption, to even build a relationship between you and him and others and you by people who have had their hearts given and directed and brokenness to him. For he uses the crooked board to rescue us. This story is more than just getting Hannah and her husband and Eli worshiping him. This is about God rescuing a people who are separated from him. Separated from his grace and the priesthood. Separated from from what is central to the relationship. The sacrificial system is central. As we saw earlier, God by Eli's posture seems to be sitting. God isn't rescuing anybody. What we see here is that out of a crooked board comes Samuel. Look at the prayer again in verse 10. 
Verse 11, rather. 10, yes. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly, and she prayed to the Lord. She made this vow, O Lord Almighty, if you will look down upon me and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he's been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. Listen, he... In this mess, God is going to raise up one who will be a priest that will not sit, but be used by God to reach a people who don't pray with their hearts, to bring a word and work of God to people whose hearts and lives sit in spiritual silence, that God uses a crooked board to build a sure foundation of being a God who will visit and answer and love his people and draw people to worship him in spirit and in truth over and against being empty spiritually, barren like Hannah, unable to make their lives make sense. And he's going to do this over and against a heaven that seems to be shut to prayer. Over and against complacent hearts, he will send Samuel. Now, the text says the nuance in this Hebrew word Samuel is strange. It means the Lord has answered prayer, but it sounds like the Hebrew for The Lord hears. What does this mean? Here's the point. Though, yes, the Lord will use broken people to accomplish His purposes. Yes, the Lord brings redemption and relief and rescue through the testimony of His people used to convey the work of God. The point, though, of this is not be like Hannah. This is not be like Samuel. This is not bring the perfect sacrifice of praise and thanks and cry when you come to church. For we all want those things to go better. And I believe if if I were to line out one, two, three things to make worship better and more sincere, man, you and me, we would kill ourselves to do it right. Our church would actually grow because we'd be like, our pastor gave us a three steps to better worship. But it's not about that. It's rather in your anguish, in your Eli-ness, in your complacent hearts, in your religious routine, in God's apparent silence and apathy for you, look to one who is like Hannah, but more. Look for one who is like Samuel, but better. One that is a good sacrifice, but better. One who perfectly prays with their heart. One who is broken by the sorrow we feel and ignore. One whom we can look at and believe that, guess what? God hears and he sees and he touches. One who will never be a spiritual routine or ritual. One who breaks us because of his love for us. See, in the ultimate course of things, God called Christ to be our Hannah. God called Christ to feel and know the anguish of a barren people. God called Christ to feel what it was like to be a people in dilemma. God called Christ to be our Samuel. A physical reality that says, guess what? God hears God calls Christ to be our sacrifice that we can worship the Lord here in our brokenness, in the forgiveness of our sins to be and make a sure foundation of our crooked boards. For all of our crooked boards, 
for all our dilemmas that we can't be make sense of or fail to respond for truly to and rightly, for all our dry tears and hard hearts and cynical thinking and analytical minds in this place, for all the know-it-alls and prideful ones, guess what? Christ weeps for you. His blood cries for your dilemma. Christ was humiliated for you. Christ was looked upon as an emotional mess for you who can't be broken. Christ communicates by the Holy Spirit on your behalf. Look to him. Call to him. Worship him. For all you who are in anguish and prayer with your heart and struggle in your brokenness. Yes, some of you are here. Guess what? God is not sitting Christ, your priest, is your Samuel. He hears you and conveys the struggle and the purpose of God so that you cry and pray and communicate to God not in vain, but you are definitely heard nor answered by his purpose. Look to Christ. Call to him. Come and worship him. Some of us are kept away by sin or insanity or all kind of problems. God gives Christ as the perfect sacrifice so you can bring it all. So that you can all come. Come to him in sincerity and worship him. Come with your crooked boards and find a savior who is a sure foundation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we sing songs. Dear refuge of my weary soul, and sometimes I feel like crying and dying, Lord, but we hold it together. We don't get too emotional. We can't wait to get out of this building so we can get and get to something we're good at and straight at and escape and run from where you, your, our issues. We can't wait to get to work on Tuesday now so that we can feel good and get moving and cover up the hurt. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Our Hannah, who weeps and cries in anguish and sincerity, and you hear and you still heal and love us when we can't be broken. But let, let the vision of Christ, let the vision of Christ, let, the, let his blood, let, let, let what he has done and, and his weeping and his sacrifice and his humiliation, let it break us and free us. Help us to be relieved of our heavy load. That we can know your grace and that your purposes can be done in the earth. Lord, we thank you and we praise you, God of the crooked board and the shore foundation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.